Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Griffin, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 225 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11 Moonwalk, Part 3. As Armstrong and Aldrin finished deploying the science experiments, Capcom Bruce McCandless radioed with some good news. Mission Control was offering a 15-minute extension. It wasn't much, Armstrong knew, but it would surely help. Neil, this is Houston, over. Neil, this is Houston, over. Hey, go ahead, Houston. Uh, Roger, we've been looking at your consumables, and uh, you're, in, you're in good shape. Uh, subject to your concurrence, we'd like to extend the duration of the EVA one five minutes from nominal. We will still give Buzz a hack at ten minutes prior for uh, heading in. Your current elapsed time is two plus twelve. Over. Okay, that sounds fine. Roger up. Neil had already abandoned thoughts of inspecting the boulders to the north. Like everything else on the moon, they were farther away than he had thought. So was the giant crater he had avoided during the descent. Neil fully expected to see its boulder-covered rim to the east, but the crater was over the horizon. However, there was the smaller crater he had flown over just before touching down. It was definitely reachable. According to the timeline, he and Aldrin were to start the documented sample now. But Armstrong figured a quick reconnaissance of the crater would be more valuable than the one or two rocks they could pick up in the same amount of time. In any case, Neil had already covered the minimum rock collection requirements with the bulk sample. Without a word to Houston, while Buzz made his way back to Eagle, Armstrong took off running. Long strides carried Armstrong into the sun's glare to the edge of a pit that looked to be 80 feet across and 15 or 20 feet deep. Armstrong was now 200 feet away from the eagle. To Neil, it looked like a baby crater. It reminded him of his two-year-old child, Muffy, 
who was lost due to a brain tumor. Neil permitted himself a moment. He stood there, remembering how Muffy would have loved sliding down into the pit. Just then, he had an overwhelming urge to do it for her. He would have loved to collect a sample of the lunar bedrock for the geologist as well. But then, his better judgment took over. Neil knew he should not try. If he got into trouble, Aldrin's helping hands were a long way off. Instead, he clicked off a series of pictures, hoping to document on film what he had no time to investigate or even describe. Then he headed back to the lunar module. Armstrong had been gone for only about three minutes, but it was the only real exploring he would have a chance to do. The rest of the moonwalk passed in a rush of activity. There was no time for both men to collaborate on a documented sample. Instead, Mission Control put Aldrin to work hammering a metal tube into the ground to obtain a core sample, a task that proved even more difficult than planting the flag. In the foreground, Buzz Aldrin is collecting a core tube sample. I hope you're watching uh, how hard I have to hit this into the ground uh, to the tune of about five inches, Houston. Roger. It almost looks wet. Houston, were you able to uh, record uh, in a documentary way where the two uh, or tube samples were taken? Negative. Meanwhile, Armstrong scurried about with a pair of long-handled tongs in search of rocks that would best represent this locale of the Sea of Tranquility. He wished he had time to collect some of those mysterious, shiny rocks he had seen earlier, or one of the clear crystals he had spotted in the soil. He couldn't find any of those now. Even as he worked, Bruce McCandless was telling him to press on. Time was short. Uh, Buzz, this is Houston. It's about time for you to start your EVA closeout activities. Roger. They've been on their life support system. On their life support systems. Two hours and 25 minutes. Buzz, this is Houston. You have approximately three minutes until you must commence your EVA termination activities. Over. Roger, understand. With time running out, Houston gave the astronauts their three-minute EVA termination alert. It was time to head back to Eagle's Ladder. But before they did, Buzz took the camera from Neil and photographed the Apollo 11 commander loading lunar material boxes on Eagle. Strangely enough, when it came time for Buzz to depart the surface, he sensed no desire to lengthen their stay. On this groundbreaking first mission, they had planned to limit their EVA and stay close to the lunar module rather than explore the low hills on the horizon. Those hills would yield to future exploration. But their mission had been accomplished, with Houston in constant radio contact with them to keep them on a strict time schedule. They didn't worry about the potential hazards of venturing off too far and possibly encountering problems on the lunar surface. Buzz and Neil were extremely conscious that they were setting precedence with everything they did, so they were extraordinarily careful to avoid any mishaps. They didn't want to trip and fall on their faces in front of the whole world. 
According to the plan, Buzz was the first to climb up the ladder and re-enter the eagle. When Buzz was already on the ladder, Neil called out to him, saying, Buzz, how about that package out of your sleeve? Did you get that? Buzz realized that in his excitement he had indeed forgot something, something extremely important to both astronauts. Buzz reached into his pocket and pulled out the small pouch that he had carried with him in his spacesuit while on the moon. It contained a patch from the Apollo 1 mission, the mission in which three friends had died and whose sacrifice carried a special meaning for them. Uh, Buzz, how about that uh, package out of your sleeve? Uh, get that? No. Okay, I'll get it. I get up there. Right now? That's all. Okay? Okay. Apollo 1 crewman Ed White had encouraged Buzz to become an astronaut, so to him it was only a fitting tribute that Ed had come along to the moon with him. The pouch also contained two medals commemorating Soviet cosmonauts Vladimir Komarov, who had perished, and Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space. Also in the pouch was a tiny silicon disk etched with goodwill messages from 73 nations, including the Soviet Union. Then there was a small gold pen in the shape of an olive branch of peace. They had thought long and hard to come up with this universal symbol of peace to include on their mission patch depicting the American eagle landing on the moon. Buzz took a long last look at the pouch and tossed it onto the moon's surface. Then Buzz handed the camera back to Neil and said, Okay, adios, amigo. I'll take it here quickly. Pick this in my pocket, Neil, and I'll yep. head on up the ladder. I'll hold it. You open the pocket up. Just hold it right there. Okay, let the pocket go. Back close. Got it. Okay. Adios, amigo. Hey. Anything more before I head on up, Bruce? Negative. Head on up the ladder, Buzz. Neil waved and watched Buzz go up the ladder. Neil and Buzz had packed their precious cargo in sealed containers, and they used their conveyor line to haul the boxes up to the ascent stage. Working with untried equipment in a vacuum, they struggled to get the samples aboard Eagle. After a few starts and stops, they managed to get it on board. 21.7 kilograms, or about 47 pounds. How you doing, Buzz? I'm okay. Uh, ready to send it up the uh, LEC? Yeah, just about. Okay, that's got it clear. Transferring the sample containers into the limb cabin now. Uh-oh. Camera came off. Even the film pipe came off. All right, they just ease it down now. Don't pull so hard on it. The Lick Observatory in California reports a return on the laser experiment. That's coming, Neil. Okay, I've got uh, one side hooked up for the second box, and I got the field back on. Okay, good. Why, that uh, build from on the LEC has kind of fallen all over me while I'm doing this. With the cargo loaded, and while preparing to climb the ladder, 
Neil sensed that if he came back to this same location on the moon, a hundred, a thousand, or a million years from now, he would find the scene as he had left it. In his visit, he had little time to get to know this small corner of the solar system, yet the knowledge and the samples from the moon he and Buzz were bringing back were priceless. Then Neil climbed the ladder and entered the ascent stage with Buzz's help. Buzz closed the hatch, and then they went through their checklist. History's first moonwalk was over. As Neil joined his moonwalking partner inside Eagle, he thought about the dire predictions some scientists had made about lunar dust catching fire when exposed to oxygen. If those predictions were true, then his whole suit was going to burst into flames because he was covered with grime. Certainly both Neil and Buzz did not believe that the rocks or dust would combust, but they did take precautions, especially in light of the Apollo 1 accident. The rock samples they gathered from the moon's surface were placed in vacuum-sealed, flame-proof boxes. Then, they slowly turned on the oxygen in the cabin. If smoke started to come out of the rock sample, they could still open the hatch and toss it out. All of this was planned in advance just in case. Lamb's systems look good. Crewman should now be transferring back to uh, Tranquility Base's environmental control system, and later we'll switch to, uh, to the vehicle's communication system. We estimate it'll be another 10 to 15 minutes before they're on the Lamb communication system. Cabin pressure coming up. Uh, about 2.789 pounds, up to 3 now, 4 PSI now, we show the cabin at 4.8 now. With a loud and welcome noise, oxygen rushed into Eagle's cabin. The dust and moon rocks did not burst into flames. The livable atmosphere allowed them to take their helmets off, but when they did, they immediately noticed a pungent odor that reminded Armstrong of wet ashes in a fireplace, and to Aldrin, it smelled just like spent gunpowder. It was actually the smell of moon dust. Next, they helped each other to remove the heavy backpacks and hook up to Eagle's life support systems. Then they ate a late dinner consisting of such tasty goodies as cocktail sausages and fruit punch. The food was cold because the lunar module did not have a method to heat it. Armstrong and Aldrin took pictures of each other's smiling, bearded faces 
and of Tranquility Base, now looking very much like an expedition site. Standing in what seemed like a frozen wave was the television camera on its stand, and still farther away were the two scientific experiments. Everything as still as a ghost town. The ground near the lunar module was covered with their footprints, each with its sharply chiseled pattern of treads. There was in them something akin to immortality. Those prints would remain fresh for perhaps a million years, subject only to the constant rain of micrometeorites from space, or perhaps another human visit to the site. Overhead, Mike Collins and Columbia were streaking by, and Capcom told him, The crew of Tranquility Base is back into Eagle, repressurized. Everything went beautifully. Columbia, Columbia, this is Houston, over. Roger, Columbia, and see Charlie, how do you read? Roger, Columbia, this is Houston, reading you loud and clear on Omni, Charlie. The crew of Tranquility Base is back inside their base, uh, repressurized. They're in the process of doffing the uh, pluses. Everything went beautifully. Over. Hallelujah. Back on the moon, it was time for Neil and Buzz to depressurize the cabin and open Eagle's hatch again. They needed to reduce weight, so they tossed out the backpacks and a bag of their unneeded gear. When Armstrong learned from Mission Control that the seismometer had picked up the jolt of the backpacks hitting the surface, he teased, You can't get away with anything anymore, can you? Houston, uh, tranquility base, repress complete. Roger, Tranquility. We observed your equipment jettison on the TV, and the uh, passive seismic experiment recorded shocks when uh, each plus hit the surface over. You can't get away with anything anymore, can you? No, indeed. Although the science for this mission was brief, it was very revealing. And, of course, the rocks were fascinating even though they were quickly collected and were not documented with photographs due to lack of time. They revealed that the moon was formed differently from how scientists had surmised beforehand. Following Apollo 11's mission, scientists theorized that a large object in the first billion years of the Earth's existence hit the planet, blasting pieces of the Earth away, and one such piece became the moon. Additionally, Mission Control actually said they could detect the astronauts walking around while they were on the surface. The sensitive seismometer was working well, and the laser reflector they installed worked such that the scientists could measure with nearly perfect accuracy the moon's distance and movement in relation to the Earth. Before getting some rest, Houston asked the astronauts if they could answer ten questions relating to observations that they had made during the EVA. Houston said they could answer them later on this evening or sometime later in the mission at their option. Armstrong agreed to go ahead and take a couple of the questions now. Here's a sample of the questions and answers. Uh, next uh, question, uh, the, uh, the uh, second uh, 
SRC uh, was uh, packed uh, rather hurriedly due to the uh, time limitation and uh, wonder if you would uh, be able to provide any more detailed description of the uh, samples uh, which were included in the uh, second SRC. Over. We got uh, two core tubes and a solar wind and uh, about uh, half of a big sample bag full of uh, assorted rocks, which I uh, picked up hurriedly uh, from around the area. Uh, tried to get uh, as many representative types as they could. Uh, Roger, uh, Neil. Uh, next uh, topic here uh, relates to the uh, rays uh, which emanate from the uh, uh, dip's uh, engine uh, burning area. Uh, we are wondering if uh, the rays emanating from the uh, uh, beneath the engine are any darker or lighter than the surrounding surface. Over. Uh, the ones that uh, I saw uh, back in the uh, aft end of the spacecraft uh, appeared to be a good bit darker. Uh, and of course, uh, viewed from the aft end where they did have the sun uh, uh, shining directly on them, it seemed as though the material had been uh, uh, baked somewhat and uh, also scattered in uh, in a radially outward direction. But uh, in that particular area, this uh, feature didn't extend more than about uh, two, maybe three feet from the uh, skirt of the engine. Over. After the questions, Mission Control reminded Neil and Buzz they needed to sleep for five hours before starting their countdown to rejoin Mike Collins in lunar orbit. So Armstrong and Aldrin prepared for a rest. They had been up since 5.30 a.m. Houston time, and it was closing in on 3.30 in the morning. But they were still keyed up, and Armstrong doubted they would actually sleep. He also knew that a very full, very critical day lay ahead. The second half of President Kennedy's challenge had yet to be fulfilled. But the sleeping business was easier said than done. The lunar module had no space for cots or beds of any kind. And they had been so busy, they really hadn't decided who was going to sleep where. So Buzz said he would take the floor. Neil said he was going to sit on the asset engine cover and lean back, and then rig up the waist tether to create a hammock to hold his legs. He felt he could sleep okay there. While trying to sleep, Buzz curled up on the floor of the lunar module. He noticed some moon dust on the floor. It had a gritty charcoal-like texture to it, and that smell. Then Buzz noticed something lying on the floor that really did not belong there. He looked closer, and his heart jolted a bit. There in the dust on the floor on the right side of the cabin lay a circuit breaker switch that had broken off. Buzz wondered what circuit breaker that was, so he looked up at the numerous rows of breakers on the instrument panel without any guard protectors and gulped hard. The broken switch was snapped off from the engine arm circuit breaker, the one vital breaker needed to send electrical power to the ascent engine that would lift Neil and Buzz off the moon. During their power descent, this same engine arm circuit breaker had been in the closed position, 
pushed in to engage the descent engine for their landing, and once they touched down, they pulled it back out in the open position to disengage the circuitry and disarm the engine. Somehow, one of them must have bumped it accidentally with their backpacks as they moved around in the cramped space preparing to get out of the lunar module, or as they came back in. Regardless of how the circuit breaker switch had broken off, the circuit breaker had to be pushed back in again for the ascent engine to at night to get them back home. They reported the problem to mission control and then tried to sleep and forget about it, as if that were possible. But they knew mission control would help figure out a solution. And if they could not get that circuit breaker pushed in after the sleep period when they were ready to lift off, then they would have to do something else. For now, Mission Control wanted them to leave the circuit breaker out anyway. So, while Neil and Buzz tried to rest, the people in Houston debated how they could work around that circuit in case it had to be left open. Uh, Houston, uh, Tranquility, uh, do you have a way of showing a configuration of the engine arm circuit breaker over? Uh, the reason I'm asking is uh, because the end of it uh, appears to be broken off. Uh, I think we can uh, push it back in again. I'm not sure we could pull it out if we pushed it in now. Over. Roger, we copy. Stand by, please. Tranquility Base, this is Houston. Our telemetry shows the engine arm circuit breaker in the open position at the present time. We want you to leave it open until it is nominally scheduled to be pushed in, which is later on. Over. Roger, copy. Trying to sleep in the lunar lander was difficult. Not only was it cramped and uncomfortable, it was cold. They turned the heat up inside the cabin, put on their helmets, and tried to get the water circulation system in their suits to warm them up, but it was still very cold. After about three hours, it became almost impossible to sleep. They could have raised the window shades and let the sunlight in to warm it up, but with the sun so bright, that probably would have kept them from sleeping too. So, their rest was more like a fitful state of drowsing. After all, few people could sleep well after walking around on the moon all evening and then planning to lift off for the journey home in a few hours. And there was the problem with the circuit breaker. Salutations from the Wolverine State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 225 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11 Moonwalk Part 3. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all of that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. In case you haven't heard, there is a new RSS feed for the first 12 episodes of the podcast. 
You can find it on the home page at the right side of the page. This means that the first 12 episodes are once again available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. To find the podcast there, search for Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute my moon emoji donors. These donors have donated for three years in a row now, and I want to thank moon emoji donors for their continued support. One other announcement. We are currently traveling, and my access to email, Twitter, and Facebook is limited at some times. If you do need to contact me, the best method is email, mike at spacerockethistory.com. had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, or you go to the homepage, you'll find one of the most striking photos Armstrong ever took. It has come to be known as the visor shot. I believe it to be the most representative photo from the Apollo 11 mission, and probably it has been seen more than any other. I'll even say it is the most familiar photo from any lunar landing, and perhaps one of the most famous photos in history. It's a simple picture of Buzz standing on the lunar surface with his left hand on his waist, and the curve of the horizon easing into the blackness of space behind him. But if you look more carefully at the reflection in the gold visor on Buzz's helmet, you can see the eagle with its landing pad, Buzz's shadow with the sun's halo effect, several of the spearmints they set out, and even Neil taking the picture. It is really an amazing picture, and it was done, taken just entirely by luck. Neil just told Buzz to stop, and he took his picture. Have you ever wondered why most of the photographs on the moon were of Buzz? It really wasn't because he was the more photogenic of the two, and it wasn't an attempt on Buzz's part to shun Neil in the photos. The real reason is Neil and Buzz had their assigned task, and since Neil had the camera most of the time, they were on the surface, it simply made sense that he would photograph their activities and the panoramas of the lunar surface. And since Buzz was the only person there, naturally he would be the subject of many of the pictures. Ironically, the photography on the moon was one of those things that weren't predetermined exactly prior to launch. NASA Public Affairs people didn't say, hey, you've got to take a lot of pictures of this or that. Most everyone was interested in the science, so they did the science, and the rest of it was sort of a gee whiz, look at that type of picture. They had not really planned a lot of that kind of stuff, but in retrospect, it provided quite an important bit of information to storyboard their adventure that the public now gets to see in the history books. So it worked out well with photography. Now, another thing I want to mention, that circuit breaker problem. I ran into some conflicting reports on how the broken circuit breaker was found. The account that I presented came directly from Aldrin's book, Magnificent Desolation. Buzz discovered it while lying on the floor attempting to sleep. Now, here's the strange thing. 
In another one of Aldrin's books, titled Men from Earth, Buzz said that they discovered it while going through a long checklist. Now, the third source I used was NASA's Apollo 11 Lunar Surface Journal, and it seems to agree more with the latter explanation. So, I just wanted to present to you that there was a discrepancy on how those events occurred. Now, that is a very minor point, and I'm not going to dwell on it. I just wanted you to know. Last thing I have here for you is a little bit of bonus content. They checked the heart rates of the astronauts while performing their duties on the surface, and I want to play this clip for you. This is Apollo Control. Dr. Charles Berry reports the heart rates during this EVA period ranged from uh, a low of 90 for both crewmen to a high of about 125 for uh, Buzz Aldrin at peak periods and a high of 160 for Neil Armstrong at peak periods. That top reading coming during the time uh, he was transferring the rock boxes into the limb. So Neil got up to 160 beats per minute doing the, uh, I guess, the hardest activity on the surface there. I found that interesting. Hope you did too. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive three new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Per H from Norway made another donation this year and was promoted to the shuttle level. Kai S. from Germany donated at the Vostok level. And Robert N. donated at the Vostok level as well. Our Patreons are at the same number as last week, 138, 12 short of the goal of 150 by the end of the year. And our overall donors have reached 250 with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind the Space Rocket History podcast is entirely listener-funded. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the home page and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Now, for those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it, and I have an item to give away this week. It is another one of the NASA 3.5-inch in diameter meatball stickers. To select the winner, I gave every donor a number. I put a range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Joe Parkey. Joe, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will be happy to mail this out to you. We'll have another drawing for the donors, 2017 donors, next week. I was pleased to see the podcast received three new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank Texas Aggie Cop 90 and Steve Schuler for taking the time and effort to write a very kind review and giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. 
There was one anonymous five-star rating as well, and I want to thank whoever did that. I really do appreciate your taking the time to give the podcast a five-star rating. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next time, we will try, hopefully, to launch the Ascent stage. In podcast news, I have a statistic for you. This is the top 10 states of the United States for downloads in August. So it's the top 10 for August. The state of Washington remains number one. California remains two. Texas remains three. Florida remains four. Virginia moves up to fifth place. Illinois moves up to sixth place. New York moves up to seventh place. The Old North State slips down to eighth place. Pennsylvania moves up to ninth. Missouri moves up to tenth. Let me give everyone in those states a great big shout out. As I mentioned earlier, we are traveling now and we had a chance to visit the Air Zoo Aerospace and Science Experience near Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was $8 to get in and I spent most of the day there. There's a lot of exhibits there. It was a really beautiful museum. It was well lit and the decor was great and it had a ton of old planes that looked fantastic. There were like a hundred rare aircrafts and spacecraft added together. There were amusement park rides and they were actually inside the museum. And there were some high hands-on science exhibits. So it was uh, pretty nice and it was about the size of four warehouse buildings. They also had a place to eat that you could overlook part of the collection there. And that was very nice. Such a, I guess I say nice too many times, but I was very impressed with that one. Now, my favorite exhibit was the V-1. You remember the V-1, Vengeance Weapon 1, the buzz bomb? They had one there, or a mock-up. So I highly recommend this museum, and I, the kids like it too. They've got a lot of fun things to do there. So that's that was definitely a good one. Okay, that's all I have for this week. I will try to have episode 226 ready by next Thursday. So long for now.